بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته This is part two of module 11, which is looking at miscellaneous issues. And this module is quite detailed and there's a lot to cover, but it's enough to know the basics really. Once you know the basics, the rest are just details to elaborate on those basics. And this topic in lesson two is about the things, the beliefs, the statements, and the actions that would cause a person to lose the greatest thing they have. That which would cause them to lose their Iman and leave the Deen of Islam. And this can be called the Mukaffirat or the things that take one outside of the fold of Islam, the causes of ridda or apostasy. That you hear every Jum'ah, every Jum'ah I read a portion at least from one of the khutbas given by the Prophet Muhammad and in that khutbah he would read uh, some verses of the Qur'an uh, one of the verses in, is in Surah Ali Imran where Allah Ta'ala says Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu ittaqullaha haqqa tuqatihi wa la tamutunna illa wa antum muslimun O you who believe have taqwa of Allah as he truly deserves. And do not in any way, shape, or form, do not die. There's the emphatic here. Do not die. Except that you are in a state of Islam as Muslims. That is the most important thing. And this topic, we could probably spread it across a few different sessions, but I don't want to do that. I just want to cover it tonight, inshallah, uh, even if we don't finish all of the slides. There's a lot of detail here. Uh, these are called the mukaffirat, and it is fardain, it is obligatory on Muslims, every single Muslim, to safeguard their iman and to avoid the beliefs and the statements and the actions which, if adopted, would take them outside of, this, of Islam and make them a murtad, an apostate. This is not a, an enjoyable topic, but it is necessary because it's the greatest thing that we have, iman, and if it is removed, there are dire consequences. Dire consequences in this life, ahkam, certain rulings that, are, that apply, and there are dire consequences in the hereafter. So we, stay, we say right out the gate that it's obligatory for us to safeguard our iman and know in general 
the things that will cause one to leave Islam. These are called mukaffirat. And generally these things are discussed in the books of fiqh, in the section on hukmul murtad, on the ruling of the apostate. They talk about what counts as apostasy and how that is established and the consequences thereof. It is obligatory to know, at least in general, how we safeguard our iman. So tonight I'm going to give you some specifics. These Some specific things in the matters of belief, statements and actions, which if done, actually take a person outside of the fold of Islam. So, as we said, it's individually obligatory on Muslims to secure their iman, which means that it is important for us to know what are those beliefs, statements and actions that can cause one to leave Islam. And we have to also know that kufr, disbelief, is any saying or action or belief that denies, disrespects, or makes fun of Allah, the prophets, the angels, the Qur'an, the last day, the deen in general, the sha'air of Islam, you name it. So that's what it is in a nutshell. Really that's enough for us to know. But it's good to give certain specific examples so we can be on the lookout without getting too obsessed about the minutia. So, before we go into those specific things that are mukaffirat, things that cause one to leave Islam, we got to talk about what kufr is. Because we live in a time where kufr is, or it's cholerary, uh, shirk, these words don't have the same gravity that they used to. They don't have the same gravity that they did in the time of the early Muslims as they should. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is that there are people who have overused these terms in accusing Muslims of them to the point where it's like the boy who cried wolf. That people are so used to hearing another person say, this person's a kafir and this one's a kafir and this one's a mushrik. And they're not. They're just making a false judgment to the point where a person hears that word and it doesn't have the effect that it should. Right? That's what happens when you overuse important terms and misapply them. But kufr is basically to deny, right? Takdeeb, to deny. And to deny means to profess or believe anything that contradicts what Allah has revealed definitively in the Quran or anything that the Prophet ﷺ has taught definitively. It is basically to say that is a lie. That is not true. I reject that. The person is making takdeeb. They are denying. They are belying. They are basically saying, I don't believe that is true. When it comes from Allah Ta'ala and it comes from the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. In in something that is definitive, qat'i, ad-dilala, what it indicates, what it means is definitive. Not something where, you know, is quru, three, is it a month or is it a menstrual cycle? I don't mean those things. I'm talking about uh, five prayers are obligatory in the, more, in the day and the evening, the day and the night. Uh, alcohol is haram. Zina is haram. Murder is haram. 
Anyone who denies these things and says, no, actually, I think it's the other way around. That is takdeeb, that is kufr. Likewise, kufr is in the form of disrespect, right? Disdain. And this is, in fact, a clear outward sign that the person is rejecting inwardly, right? If a person makes fun of the Creator, if a person makes fun of the Messenger of Allah, or the Quran, or any of the things of deen, that is an indication that they don't truly believe, they reject. And this obviously is kufr, taking them outside of Islam. So committing kufr in, in, in these explicit ways causes a person to become a murtad, where they leave the religion, they become a kafir, even if they were previously a Muslim. And that is called ridda or apostasy. Now, Ridda has effects in this life and it has effects in the hereafter. And there are legal rules that pertain to the murtad that affect us even, such as marriage, inheritance, the slaughtered animals of people who are like that, uh, where they're buried, do they even receive burial rights of, as, of Muslims, and so on. Not to mention the effects of that in the hereafter. So that's what kufr is in a nutshell. But we have to give this some disclaimers. And uh, as I'm going through these slides, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, yeah, maybe this is worth two sessions because it's a very heavy topic. So I don't want to feel like I'm rushing through these either. So before we talk about the specific examples, we have to give some important disclaimers. Not everything in the list I'm going to pro provide you is the same. Some of the examples I'm going to give you are very obvious, where ignorance is not an excuse. You know, a person, there are certain things a person cannot profess and cannot do and yet claim, oh, I didn't know, I'm ignorant. Right? So, you know, in Islamic law, we do have this concept of al-udhr bil jahl, the excuse we give to someone due to ignorance. But that's within a, you know, a certain set circumstances and situations. And it's not for everything. So not everything I'm giving you on the list is equal. Some things are more obvious than the other. And you know, sometimes a person may fall into some of these things. But we, you cannot recklessly call a person a kafir just because they may have said or done something that uh, may appear to be kufr. You have to be very careful here. Uh, because there are certain conditions that have to be in place before that person can be judged as such. And there has to be certain impediments removed. Certain conditions have to be in place. Certain impediments have to be removed. And this is not really the place for all of that, but that's the role of the Qadi, essentially. The role of the Qadi, the judge, is to deal with these cases individually and make sure the conditions are in place. Uh, but some of these are so, are so explicit that even those things aren't required. Uh, another part of this disclaimer is the warning against careless takfir. And takfir, of course, is to declare someone a kafir. Now, there are times and places where that is actually required. There are times and places where that is so explicit that to refuse that would be essentially to deny that something is uh, clear in certain heresy. You know, if a person insults Allah and they deliberately worship an idol, there's no doubt that that person is a disbeliever. 
for a person to now hesitate and say, oh, I don't know, maybe, you know, that's a problem. But at the same time, you know, in many of the cases, it's not always going to be that clear. So we have to be mindful of careless takfir. Uh, this is dangerous to our own iman if we become careless with that. The Prophet ﷺ says in the famous hadith, whoever says to his brother, uh, O kafir, then that statement applies to one of the two. So if that person is not actually a kafir, then that statement would apply to the person who made the takfir. So you have to be very, very careful. So we're learning these things not to uh, shine the light on other people and observe what they are doing or saying that may be kufr. We're learning these things so that we can be aware for ourselves, so that we can be mindful of these things that if said, done, or believed, would take us outside of the deen of Islam. So, after these disclaimers, we can get into the, some of the specifics. So I'm dividing these into three categories. Mukaffirat, uh, things that are kufr in matters of theology, meaning matters that pertain to belief in Allah. Mukaffirat in prophetology, you know, concerning the prophets and messengers. And then miscellaneous issues, three categories. So these are just a sample of some of the things that would be considered kufr, disbelief. Uh, saying or believing that any of Allah's attributes has a beginning, right? Because that would mean that He is part creator and part brought into existence. That's kufr, right? To say that Allah has a beginning or that His attributes have a beginning, a starting point, they didn't always. They weren't always there. That would, that would imply that Allah has a beginning. So that would be kufr. Uh, saying or believing that Allah is united with His creation or physically enters created things such as the sky or a body or a person or a thing, that would be kufr. That is hulul and ittihad, indwelling, incarnation. Uh, this is negated by al-qiyamu bin nafs. Um, that would be disbelief as well. Uh, also to say or believe that Allah changes. Because changes are a series of events and all events have a beginning. And by changes here, we don't mean the divine actions because the actions are other than Allah. When Allah creates, when Allah creates and provides and bestows and gives and withholds, those are the af'al of Allah, the actions of Allah. So we see change in the creation, but the creator doesn't change. The Creator does not undergo change because this indicates imperfection and need and development and all sorts of implications. Now, a person may say certain words that imply this, in which case you have to establish the proof and clarify. That's why I said not everything here is on the same level of explicitness. We have to be mindful of that. Uh, to say that Allah Ta'ala is like His creation, that would be kufr. So it would be kufr according to the ulama to say uh, Allahu jismun kal ajsab. Right? If they said Allah is a body like other bodies. But if they said Allahu jism la kal ajsab, this would be uh, a, a heresy, meaning it would be a bid'ah in aqidah to say that, but the majority say that wouldn't be kufr. 
because there's a kind of shubha there, there's a kind of doubt. What they're trying to say is, you know, Allah is not like creation, but they're affirming certain things. But if a person says Allah is like creation explicitly, that is a denial of the Qur'an. That is a denial of the clear hadith. لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ Right, so that would be kufr. Uh, it would also be kufr to believe or say that Allah needs something, that He needs His creation, that He needs something from us. Allah does not need our actions. He doesn't need our ibadah. He needs nothing from us. To say that He is in need of anything would be kufr. Uh, and most of these examples are very clear like this. Uh, to say or believe that Allah has a partner is obviously kufr. Because having a partner means needing the agreement of the two parties for things to get done. Uh, and there's different ways you can look at that. There's a particular proof for that called burhan al-tamani' or the argument of mutual hindrance in aqidah. Where they talk about if there were two or more gods and how this would be rationally impossible because God by definition is all powerful and if there's another God then either they have to agree or they have to agree to split things which still means they're depending on the other which means they don't have absolute power and you know this is the idea so having partners to say that is kufr um, likewise to say that Allah has a rival you know like some of the the, you know, the Zoroastrians, the Majus, they believe in this duality of this uh, being of light and being of evil, and this, you know, these two forces are fighting it out, right? Uh, and, you know, some people believe that. They believe, they give qualities to the devil that the devil doesn't have, as if he's omnipotent, and that it's the battle between God and the devil, and, you know, we don't know who's going to win. Some people believe like that. That would be kufr because it's assuming that the devil, shaitan, is on an equal level as a rival. That's not the case at all. in need. To say that Allah is a child, or a part, or a partner, a mother, or a wife, uh, or that anything other than Allah deserves worship, right? The person says, you know, this person, or that object, or this star, or this whatever, deserves ibadah, obviously that's shirk, that's kufr, that would take one outside of Islam. That's very explicit. If a person says Allah has limbs and body parts, that would be kufr, because the appendages, having appendages means that without them you're incomplete, and that you're composite. This is tarkib. Tarkib indicates multiplicity, kathra, and kathra negates Wahda, oneness. So these are some of the mukaffirat. Uh, likewise, anyone or anything saying that anyone or anything has a similarity to Allah uh, or his essence, attributes, or actions. These are pretty clear, right? Now the specifics that you may encounter in life may sound a little bit different from the way I'm presenting it. So if you hear something that sounds a little wonky and you're not sure what it means, you know, seek clarity. If it seems like it fits into any of these, it might not, or it might, but the person may just not know how to properly speak when they talk about these things. Sometimes people say things and they don't 
they don't mean to say what the actual statement implies. And if you tell them the implication of it, they reject the implication, right? You tell them what you just said, it implies need or implies weakness or implies partnership. And then they, they recoil from that and they say, I don't, I don't mean that. The problem is in their wording and they have to change the wording, right? So the majority position is, لَازِمُ الْمَذْهَبُ لَيْسَ بِلَازِمُ Right? Uh, is not you know, the, the, the implication of what a person says they're not held to it because if they're told it they might avoid it right? they may not agree with the implication of what they said uh, it's just a matter of poor word choice uh, there's lots of these you know, saying or believing that Allah doesn't have power he doesn't have power over all things uh, all things that relate that are uh, related to uh, Allah's uh, to say that He does not have power that is connected to all rationally possible things. Uh, saying or believing that anything or anyone besides Allah has independent power to create. Right? You know, if a person said the mother creates life, that wouldn't be kufr. Because, I mean, maybe it's a poor word choice. Because if you ask that person what they mean, they don't mean independent of Allah. They just mean that, you know, she has the womb. And in that womb, Allah creates that fetus in these various stages of development. And then eventually she gives birth to this child. So when she says create, it's, a, it's kind of like shorthand, it's figurative. Meaning she is the... You know, she's the means or the vessel for that creation, not that she's the actual creator. You know, to be careful here, because, you know, the language is rich, right? Who takes the souls? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala affirms he takes the souls in the Quran. But there are certain verses where Allah says it's the angel of death that takes the souls. What's going on here? Which one is it? Is it the angel or is it Allah? It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when Allah ta'ala mentions the angel taking the soul, he is ascribing the action to the angel because the angel is the sabab. It is the material cause. It is the sabab or the cause for the soul being taken. But who creates that sabab? And who causes it to take effect? It's Allah Ta'ala. So when we say certain things, you know, there's a shorthand in our language. There's a basic shared understanding. As a Muslim, when you say, for example, the water quenched my thirst, I would never dare say, oh, you're saying the water is a creator of quenching. And therefore, you're saying that the water is a khaliq, independent of Allah. Therefore, you're saying that the water has a quality of Allah, therefore you are kafir. We don't do this. We understand that when a person ascribes something to something else, like this, it's, kind of, it's like shorthand. It's like shorthand. Yeah, it's the sabab, right? And we understand that because the person saying it is a Muslim. So we, uh, we interpret their statements through the lens of la ilaha illallah, as Muslims. 
We don't, you know, maybe an atheist would say the water quenched my thirst, and what they mean is completely different from what the Muslim means. They believe that it has inherent power, independent, and all of this stuff, right? So, a bit of a tangent there, but it's important. Uh, saying or believing that anything or anyone besides Allah has the independent power to create. Saying or believing that Allah's actions are unwise or unjust. Why is this in the Quran? Why is this in the Sharia? Why are they allowed to do that and we're not allowed to do that? It's unfair. Ascribing zulm to Allah Ta'ala. What is zulm? What is oppression? Oppression or wrongdoing is doing something with respect to the possession or dominion of another that's not yours, right? You have a house. You own the house. If I start breaking your windows, I am oppressing you because I am interacting with your possession in a way that you don't like, right? Allah Ta'ala doesn't oppress. Zulm. It's rationally impossible for Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. Right? So the belief that Allah's actions are unwise or unjust, this would be kufr. Right? Saying or believing that Allah does not have absolute knowledge. Obviously. Saying or believing that Allah needs others to be aware of what is happening in His dominion. You know, He needs people to tell Him what's going on. Saying or believing that Allah has attributes of imperfection, flaws, weaknesses, boundaries, needs, or limits, such as body, location, size, shape, distance, it's all kufr. Um, these are the points that we need to take to heart. Of course, if you hear people saying something that sounds a little wonky, you can't just automatically assume they're guilty of kufr. Sometimes people just word things in very imprecise ways. And when you interrogate what they're saying and unpack it and show them the implication, they reject that and they just change the words. So you have to be mindful of that too. So now we go on to prophetology, meaning the things regarding the prophets and messengers that if believed in or said would cause a person to leave Islam. Every Muslim has to believe that the prophets of Allah Ta'ala are examples of human perfection and are models for us to follow. So saying or believing that it's possible for the Anbiya and the Rusul, even before their Nubuwa or Risala, to say that it's possible for them to lie or to cheat, or to betray, or to be cowards, or to be stupid, or ill-mannered. All of that is kufr. Right? To say or believe that it's possible for the prophets, even before Nabuwa or Risala, to commit kufr, to not believe in Allah, uh, to commit major sins, or even uh, minor sins that, uh, that show what we call khissa, meaning they're they're trifling sins, you know, like stealing someone's food, you know. It's just a lowly thing, a despicable thing. To say that that's possible for the prophets to fall into, even prior to prophethood, would be kufr. If someone says that there's a prophet after the Prophet Muhammad, this will be kufr. 
right? There's no question, there's no debate about the fact that the Qadianis are outside of Islam. We, we don't even we we don't even call them murtads. We don't even call them murtads because a mur, to be a murtad, you have to you have to have actually been a Muslim beforehand. If a person was born into that faith, they never became Muslim in the first place. They're not a murtad. It only be applied to someone who was a Muslim and then joined them. But they believe that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad is a prophet and they believe that they don't they reject the finality of prophethood ending with the Prophet. So they are guilty of denial, takdeeb of these clear verses and narrations, and therefore that takes them outside of Islam. Um, likewise, it's kufr to say that it's acceptable for a person to follow a religion other than Islam. We, we touched on this last week a little bit. You know, the idea of salvific exclusivity, that Islam is the only valid path of salvation in the hereafter. So if a person believes that, you know, it's okay for you to worship idols, it's okay for you to believe in this and that, things, things which are outside of Islam. This will be kufr because bil kufri being satisfied or pleased with disbelief is disbelief itself. Um, where does this come up actually? It comes up in, up, up in one area that maybe you weren't expecting. Fulan comes to the masjid. They're not a Muslim. They say, uh, I'm not a Muslim. But I'm interested in becoming a Muslim. I want to take shahada. And then some Muslim tells them, well, you know it's serious. I don't, you know, maybe you're not ready. Go home and read more about it. They are implicitly pleased with this person remaining in that state of kufr before they become a Muslim. Right? If a person says they want to become Muslim, we don't question the sincerity. We just administer, give them the shahada, and then after that you say, now you can go home, and then you can read, you can study, you can come back and learn with us and be with the community and grow in your deen. But the idea that you have to give people some uh, waiting period of, you know, the Jews do this. If you can't really convert to Judaism properly because it's an ethnic group as well. But if in some denominations, if a person wants to convert to Judaism, they require them to study the faith for over a year and attend all these meetings and gatherings, and then they have the ceremony. Not for us. Because what does that mean? It means that in the time being, that person is remaining upon kufr. They haven't become Muslim yet. Are we satisfied to have them remain in that state? No, we want them to leave that state as soon as possible. So... I'm not saying that if the Muslim who sends him home is pleased with kufr and therefore they're kafir. I'm not saying that. But that could be uh, that could be the case in some people if they're fine with a person remaining upon kufr like that. So we have to be mindful of this. <clears throat> it will be kufr also to believe that any prophet such as Jesus or Moses taught the beliefs of another religion other than Islam. All prophets taught the beliefs of Islam. 
When we say Islam, we say there's the, the, the lowercase i, Islam, and then there's the uppercase capital I, Islam. The capital I, Islam, is the Islam embodied in the Sharia, in the Quran, in the way of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That's the capital I, Islam. The lowercase i, Islam, is the deen of all of the prophets and messengers. So what this means is, it would be disbelief for a person to believe that previous prophets preached idol worship, for instance. That they were like Hindus or something. Right? I haven't actually encountered anyone who has that belief. But it's mentioned by the ulama, because Allah affirms multiple times in the Quran that the deen of the Anbiya is the same. The, the primordial fitri belief in Allah Ta'ala as the creator and the provider and the one solely worthy of worship, that's shared by all the prophets. Where they differ is in the details of their respective laws. That's it. Right. Uh, number six, cursing, insulting, or making fun of Allah, a prophet, a revealed book, the Islamic religion, or any of its rules is kufr. Neither ignorance nor anger is an excuse in this. Uh, this is a big one. Uh, and number six is a big one. And I, I know that in some parts of the world is also very politicized. Where, you know, even me talking about it now, I'm just thinking about all the scenarios that have happened in the past and continue to happen where a person perhaps is arguing with someone in their village and they accuse them of saying something blasphemous because they want their land or something. And then now people are up in arms in the village, Gustach, and they want to you know, take the law into their own hands and next thing you know, they're in jail for blasphemy. And it hasn't even been proven that they said the blasphemy. Right? It hasn't even been proven. But the idea of you even saying maybe it should be established before we carry out any sentence a lot of people were seen as being soft by just suggesting that. So I know in some parts of the world, these things are politicized. I'm not talking about any of that. We're talking about this for ourselves. If a person disrespects the Prophet ﷺ, belittles him, denigrates his status, uh, or any other prophet, or the angels, or the books, or the creator, that would be kufr. Cursing, insulting, denigrating, disrespecting, all of this. Uh, the best resource for this is uh, section 4 of the Shifa of Qadr Iyad, where he talks about this in great detail, uh, at least according to the Maliki Fuqaha. Then there's actions. So there's actually four categories. I said uh, theology, prophetology, miscellanea. There's actions and then miscellanea, four. Now actions, when we talk about actions, what we mean are any action that uh, denies, disrespects, or makes fun of Allah, the prophets, the angels, the Qur'an, or the deen of Islam. But it's an action, but implicit in that action is this internal belief. You know, that thing can only be done by someone who harbors that belief, if they're purposely doing it. For example, a person purposely takes the mushaf and they throw it in a rubbish bin or in filth or najas on purpose. 
they know what they're doing. We're not talking about the person who thinks that it's some scrapbook. They don't know. And they take it and throw it into the rubbish bin. We mean they know it's the Qur'an. They know it's the Mus'haf. And they deliberately take it and throw it into najasa or rubbish on purpose. That action, the scholars say, can only come from a person who internalizes rejection, kufr. It's impossible that a person could have, mashallah, yani iman qawi, a strong iman, he's a good brother, but he throws the mushaf in filth. Mustahil. It's impossible. Right? So it's, you know, the action itself, we say the action is kufr, but, you know, what if the person didn't realize it was the mushaf? Right? For them, that wouldn't be kufr because they didn't know. But we're talking about the one who knows. Uh, likewise, wearing a cross on purpose and believing that it's okay to do so. The ulama say that this would be kufr because the cross is the, the most distinctive sign of another religion. Can you think of a symbol that's distinctive for a religion more distinctive than the cross? Like the Hindus have the Aum symbol, but that's, there's Muslims who don't even know what that looks like. I see a Muslim wearing that on a sweater. They don't even know what it is. Star David, right? And Najmud Dawoodi. Well, that has history. That's actually a sacred symbol, you know, even prior to, prior to uh, its use by the state of Israel. You know, if you look at the Moroccan flag prior to World War II, Two, the star, now it's the five-pointed star. But back then it was the, the star of David. Not because it was ascribed to David, but because it had a certain symbolism. But it's not like the cross. The cross is very distinctive as a religious symbol. So if a person wears a cross, this is a distinctive sign uh, of that religion. And being pleased with kufr and the signs of kufr and willingly and happily wearing those things, would be kufr. Now it's possible that a person might not know, uh, specifically if they're wearing something that is technically a cross, but doesn't look like the standard cross. Right? You see some of these organizations, these clubs, they have awards or medals they give different people. So you see a dignitary is given, uh, they call it an iron cross. In the Iron Cross, it looks like, it looks like uh, four different inverted triangles, right? When you, when you position them, they look like four pieces. It, it's not an, it doesn't look like an obvious cross to many people, as opposed to the normal-looking cross. Maybe there, there's an excuse. The person is not aware. So in all these cases, we're talking about the person doing something on purpose, knowing what it is, knowing what it represents, and being happy with it. Right? Uh, if it's related to this, we can take it now. What about rainbow, rainbow, rainbow flag, rainbow colors? Uh, it wouldn't be kufr because those are colors and the LGBT stuff is not a specific religion per se. It's, you know, they've appropriated colors, you know. If a person wears it, Imitating them, obviously that would be impermissible because it's imitation of fasaq. But 
it's not on the same level because we're talking about uh, symbols that represent beliefs regarding God, right? Which beliefs which are kufr, yeah. But not, one shouldn't wear those things, obviously. But it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. Uh, another one, knowingly prostrating sajda to the sun or fire or another object. If someone does a prostration to a human to worship him, with the intention of worship, then he has committed kufr. If it's not done to worship him, maybe they don't intend to worship, they just do it, then it's not kufr, but it's haram. Right? Um, you know, if a person was to bow in front of someone, or even if they made like the motion of sajdat, you know, kiss someone's feet like this and show this submissiveness, but they're not intending worship, they're just intending respect, that would be haram because that's abrogated in our sharia, but it's not. It wouldn't be kufr unless they have the intention of worshipping that person. And we'll be talking more about that probably, if not next week, the week after, uh, more about some of those details. Like when the people, when the brothers of Yusuf and his father and mother, when they reunited with him, what did they do? They prostrated. Were they worshipping him? No. How do we know? It was a prostration of respect. It doesn't come with the niyyah of worship. That was allowed in their sharia. It, was, it is disallowed in our sharia. If someone were to do it with the same intention, we would say it's haram because it's been abrogated no longer in our sharia. It's not in our sharia, although it was in the prior ones. But it would only be kufr if they intend to worship that person. And how would you know they intended? Well, they'd tell you. They'd have to tell you. You know, externally, you'd have to figure out what's going on. Uh, now we come to miscellanea. Um, what time? How much time do we have? Um, ten minutes. Okay. It's uh, eight thirty-five. Okay. So, in the miscellaneous mukaffirat, th these are not under any particular section. Considering anything that is definitively halal to be haram, or believing anything that is definitively haram to be halal is kufr. Who can give me an example of that? Something that is definitively halal. No, halal. Let's start with something super simple. Drinking water at nighttime. Hello. Drinking water at nighttime. And the only reason I don't say daytime is because a person may say, oh, what if you're fasting? But drinking water at nighttime. That is definitively halal. Kulu washrabu. Right? That's a command. Yani, amr, but lil-ibaha. For permissibility. That is definitively halal, meaning there's no question that it's halal. If a person comes around and says, no, it's actually haram to drink water at night, you're only allowed to drink it in the daytime. They are making haram what Allah has made halal, and it's definitively halal, right? 
Who can give me an example of something that's definitively haram? When I say definitively, I mean qat'an. Yani, bidalil qat'i. Eating pork for a person who's uh, not under compulsion or not in the state of necessity. Eating pork. Yes, that's clear cut. It's explicit in the Quran. If a person says, well, you know, that was actually because they were unclean back then, but now we can make them clean, we can give them nice clean pens, and therefore today it's halal. They're denying the verses of Allah where it's definitively haram. That would be kufr. Right? Okay, what if a person says, this, this is not a trick question, but I want you to think carefully. A person says, um, smoking is halal. Do they become a kafir? Why not? Yeah, this is not definitively haram. There, a large number of ulama say haram, yes. But there is a difference of opinion, and the proofs for its permissibility and for its unlawfulness are not definitive in nature. It's all ijtihad. It's not qat'i. So if a person believes that thing is halal, they are not making uh, the haram halal, a haram that is definitively haram. So they're not denying anything from the deen. Uh, on the other hand, if someone denies the obligation of salat, that's qat'i, that's definitive. So there's a big difference between the two. That's why I'm saying definitive here. Yes? What if someone believes that halal is different with the opposite gender? Does that support the thing that they are it, No, I mean, it, it depends on what they mean and if... And, and to what extent, what do they mean by this word friendship and what level of interaction? Do they mean pleasant company, conversation in a public setting, in the classroom, with uh, proper decorum? You know, words have meanings and sometimes people mean different things with these words. And, you know, if they say that uh, being alone with the opposite gender in isolated in a room where no one's around and engaging in this and that and the other is halal, that would be a rejection of what is clear-cut forbidden. But just saying friends, okay, I mean, what does that mean for this person? Right? They need to explain more. Yeah. Um, denying anything that is known in the religion by necessity. Right? They call that al-ma'loom min al-deen bid-darura. Deny anything that is known in the religion by necessity, like denying the existence of angels, uh, or denying the last day, or denying that vuhur consists of four rak'ahs for a person who is resident, or denying that fasting in Ramadan is fard for a resident person who is able. Right, that is denying something that is known in the religion by necessity. Now, what if a person says, um, I don't believe that it is haram to engage in gharar transactions. Does that mean they're outside of Islam? 
Is that, is that known from the religion of Islam by necessity? No. A lot of people don't know what that word means even. What, what is a gharar? What are these transactions? It's from the deen, but it's not common knowledge like the five prayers, fasting, kindness to parents, you know, the prohibition of lying and murder and so on. They're obvious things, right? If a person denies that, it would only be kufr if they are shown definitively that this is in the Qur'an or in the hadith and these are definitive and they continue or they say that's not true, I reject that. Otherwise, no. Um, if a person intends to leave Islam, obviously that would be kufr. Even if they say in their heads, uh, I'm gonna, if they say they intend to leave Islam tomorrow, right? I don't know anyone who does that, but it would be. You know, intending kufr would be kufr. Um, the three, when you look at all of these things that we're talking about, beliefs, certain actions, and denials, when you look at all of them, they all have three things. They all go back to these three things. They go back to either denying something that is known by necessity from Islam, such as denying the obligation of salat or zakat or fasting or hajj, or denying the unlawfulness of zina, sodomy, drinking alcohol, and so on. So it's takdeeb, right? Denial of what is known to be from the religion by necessity. Or it could be doing certain actions on purpose that can only come from someone who harbors kufr in their heart, just as, such as disrespecting the mushaf, the Qur'an, prostrating to an idol on purpose, and so on. And lastly, disrespect, denigration, belittlement of Allah Ta'ala, the prophets, the angels, or the symbols of Islam. Now included in number three, and I, think, I don't think we addressed it properly earlier, Included with number three is joking about Allah Ta'ala or the prophets or the angels or the sacred, right? To make them a part of one's comedy routine would take one outside of Islam. And you have so-called Muslim comedians out there for whom Islam and matters of the sacred are the butt of their jokes. So this is, uh, this, this is out there. Um, so there's some rules we have to understand, because uh, this gets confusing. You have to know and not confuse an actual belief with a thought that crosses the mind. Right? If you have a thought crossing your mind, I'll go back to my classic example. You're walking down the street downtown, and you think in your mind, I wonder what would happen if that person was pushed into the traffic. It's a passing thought, and then it, it comes quickly and leaves quickly. It's not your thought. That doesn't mean you are thinking about pushing someone onto traffic. So likewise, with these beliefs that are kufr, the fact that you conceptualize them and they come into your mind and then leave, that doesn't mean it's become your belief, right? Just because it occurred in your mind. The belief is what you latch on to. Shaytan may whisper ideas into someone's heart, but if they reject them and they dislike them and they want them to be gone, the fact that they reject them in their heart and dislike them is proof they don't embrace them as beliefs. So we have to be careful here because there are some people who get caught up in this OCD stuff. 
whether it's with wudu and tahara or these ideas. I have people sometimes, they message me, they say, you know, I, I, have, I have thoughts of kufr, you know, passing thoughts. Am I a kafir? Do I have to take my shahada over again? They're passing thoughts. Do you like them? Do you embrace them? Or do you hate them? If you hate them and you want them gone, but they come and go, they're not yours. They're just the wasawas of shaitan. Just say, amantu billah, and keep it moving. So you have to be careful here. Um, if the thought occurs, you reject it in your heart, and you try to get rid of it, move on to something else. As long as you hate it, and you have your belief in Allah, you're still Muslim, alhamdulillah. Um, if someone believes something that is kufr, then yes, that person will be a kafir, but not the passing thought. It, de- it depends, because sometimes people with OCD, they say they have doubt, but when you interrogate it, you realize it's not doubt. They're just mixing between their own convictions and passing thoughts. And they think that the existence of a passing thought is the same as having a doubt. So it really depends on what they mean by that. It's like with the questioner asking about you know, having uh, a friend from the opposite gender. Well, what does that mean? Same thing for this. What does it mean to have a doubt? So when you ask, what do you mean? Yeah, there's two. Th- yeah, there's two things here. If they have actual doubt, where they are legitimately unsure in themselves, that would be kufr. But if they believe but they're unsure of how to prove that belief or respond to an argument put forth by an atheist, for instance, that just because they can't respond doesn't mean they don't believe internally, right? You know, you you could go to a mutakallim, a theologian. You can give him a really difficult shubha, doubt, by an atheist, and they can answer it. You give the same argument to someone who's not trained in theology, and they might be stumped. They don't know how to answer it. Not because they doubt in their belief in Allah. It's just they don't have the tools to reply to that specific doubt uh, when they're asked about it. You see the distinction here? Like their belief is still there. They just don't know how to answer. So they would go to someone who knows how to answer. And if that question, you know, they can't answer it, it starts to trouble them. But they still believe. But they want to know, how do I answer that? Because this is troubling me. I still believe. They go to a, a scholar of, of aqidah, mutakallim, who can answer in a way that, so that it makes sense to them, so that they can remove that. It's like medicine for the person who's sick. Yeah, there's countless examples of things that could be kufr, and we have to be mindful of what people mean, and they should be questioned. and. Yeah, it is better to leave a thousand people as zanadiqa, you know, as heretics, uh, 
out of a caution than to take someone outside of Islam who is actually a Muslim. So we have to be careful. Yeah. Um, a couple of important points before we, before we leave. Um, you know, sometimes a person is talking about beliefs, beliefs of others, or they're mentioning something they've come across. There's a very important principle. They say, the scholars say, The one who is quoting kufr is not necessarily guilty of kufr himself. So, if a person is quoting the words of someone else, and those words are kufr, they need to make clear that they're quoting those words, right? If they quote the words and they're happy with the words, they don't condemn those beliefs, then they're not just quoting them to quote, they're quoting them because they're happy with them. That would indicate embracing them. Um, but if they're just quoting them, then you know, often scholars will say, you know, so-and-so, this person said, The one who quotes kufr is not a kafir, but they said this, right? You know, they, they give that disclaimer before they quote the offending statement, right? But so if someone repeats kufr, or if they write it without relating it uh, to those who said it, it is possible, it is possible in some scenarios, that that could be kufr, right? For example, let's say there is some song, and the song has all sorts of shirk. Right? Just recently, there was one person performing in Saudi Arabia, right? And the lyrics were, you know, God is this, God is that, you know, just absolute kufr. If a person takes that song because, hey, it's a popular song and I like the beat, and they start singing the lyrics, approvingly quoting the words of this singer, that is not the same as a person saying, this Christian says this and it's wrong. And they read the passage of Kufr. Because the one who's reading the Kufr passage is reading it because they want to critique it. Whereas this person is reading the lyrics, singing them because they like them. Even if they say, I don't believe those words, they're still showing a satisfaction with statements that are Kufr. You see the distinction here? Right? Allah Ta'ala mentions the words of those who disbelieved in Him in the Quran. We recite those verses. We are reciting the citations of those people who uttered kufr. We're not pleased with those statements, meaning the statements of those individuals when they said that. So it's one thing to quote it because it's condemned and you're reflecting on the meaning and you're refuting it. And it's another thing to quote it with approval because you like the way it sounds or, you know, it's okay for you to sing it, right? To, that would be kufr. Uh, but just quoting it on its own, when someone's disapproving, that, that's not the same. Um, running out of time. Let's take a couple of questions because um, we'll we're, we're going to be talking more about this in other sessions, so I'll touch on some of these in the next class or two. Take a question. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, like, a man has to take care of the woman, they are like, they're not taking the needs of their woman. The women are also good. Is that statement that like, you're objecting to the laws of the 
Yeah. So the brother's asking about people objecting to the inheritance laws in Islam. It it depends on what exactly they're saying. Because a person could say these are the inheritance laws in the Quran and we live in a time where society is not the same as it was back then. So they are not denying the inheritance laws. They're saying that you know, there should be some measures in place to make sure that you know, things are carried out in a way that other needs are met. You know, they're not denying it. They're just saying that, oh, we need to ensure that these things are in place so that all rights are fulfilled. You know, it really depends on what they're saying. But if they say, oh yeah, the, if they say, kafir, um, these verses of the Qur'an are about these inheritance laws, and those are unjust. If they say that, that's unquestionably kufr. Because they're explicitly saying that the inheritance laws in the Qur'an are unjust. But if they say, oh, they're just, but they're not applied in a just manner today because people are taking the inheritance of this one and that one and redistributing it, and so we have to have some safeguards and other measures in place, that's not exactly the same thing as a person saying they're unjust or denying them. They're, they're looking at other factors that complicate the equitable distribution of the inheritance. Does that make sense? It really comes down to the specifics of what the person is saying. Um, it's not always going to be the same. Yeah. Any other questions? What's that? Oh, فَلَمَّا رَأَى الْقَمْرَ That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, we should explore it in more detail, though, because we don't have enough time. The answer to that question, the sister's asking about, uh, we talk about kufr and prophetology, to say that any of the prophets, even before their mission, were ever guilty of kufr or shirk. That's completely false. How do we understand the story of Ibrahim salam and his people in this dialogue when he observed the, the moon and the sun and said, Hada Rabbi. Well, the answer is in the story. Because at the very end of that story, what does Allah Ta'ala say? You know the verse? What comes at the end of that story? Tilka hujjatuna. Right? That was our proof that we gave to Ibrahim against his people. So the story is actually the hujjah, the proof of Ibrahim against his people. So the, the, the story itself ends with the context telling you that Ibrahim السلام, is not observing the stars, the moon, the sun, and actually saying, this is my Lord. He's saying it as a rhetorical question what they call istifham in kari, hada rabbi, this is my lord, as they claim, hada rabbi, he's not saying, hada rabbi, now this is my lord, it's not uh, a declarative statement, 
It's not an affirmative statement. It is an interrogation, and he's putting it forth as a rebuke of his people. And then he observes them setting and disappearing and waning and says, oh, this is a proof that this cannot be my Lord. Because why? These things undergo change. Mm. Change, right? So there are some people, though, you're right. There are some people who read that story and they think, hmm, he wasn't actually, he, he was upon Kufar and then Allah guided him. He was searching for the truth. Yeah. So because of the ambiguity here, if a person said that, we would have to establish the proof for them and show them from the whole story and the ending verse that this was not him embracing that as a belief, but rather it was a method of da'wah. So you can't be hasty with people and say, oh, oh, you said that? You have to give people time. You've got to explain things, establish the hujjah. Uh, that's far from clear, right? A person who is far from knowledge may have a very surface level understanding and read that and understand this. Yeah. It's a good question. Okay, inshallah. We'll have to start next week and finish these slides.